I'm sort of of this gold star generation where, you know, self-esteem was sort of the buzzword and everyone was given a gold star and everyone's a winner with sort of the thought that if we can build up people's self-esteem, then they're going to be better off. It sort of fell out of favor after a meta-analysis was done looking at the self-esteem research. What they found was the only thing that truly builds self-esteem in any meaningful way is taking risks, doing hard things, working hard, and accomplishing things. Self-esteem is not built through generic pats on the back and out of boys and out of girls that are disconnected from actual accomplishment. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast where we explore the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning through the lens of my guests' expertise and or money journeys. We're going to be doing that today through the lens of Dr. Daniel Crosby. He's a psychologist and behavioral finance expert who studies and writes about, well, basically about our brains and and how they interact with the world of money in both positive and sometimes less positive ways. He's a really interesting cat. I very much enjoyed this conversation. He's a likable and thought-provoking dude. So stick around for two minutes while I tell you about my upcoming comedy shows, and then we'll get to Daniel Crosby, PhD. You can always see my comedy shows on my website, paulollinger.com. Click on the upcoming shows button. A link to it is in the show notes, but a few that are coming up that you might be interested in include the Best of Atlanta show at the Laughing Skull Lounge on October 28th and 29th. On November 9th, I will be at the Rockwell Theater in Somerville, Massachusetts, as part of the Boston Comedy Festival. Come out if you're near Boston, if you're in the general New England area, or if you're just looking for an excuse to go to that lovely town that time of year. The comedy festival is a contest thing, so if enough of you come out and laugh at my very funny jokes, I'll move on to the next round, and there'll be more opportunities for you to see me as part of the Boston Comedy Festival. Also, December 3rd and 4th, I will be at the Comedy Catch in Chattanooga, Tennessee, opening for Jay Bliss. I was in Chattanooga this past weekend doing a guest spot there. What a cool little club in a cool little part of town. You know, I used to drive to college from Atlanta to Memphis, Tennessee to Rhodes College, and we drive through Chattanooga all the time. And I don't remember ever getting off the highway there except maybe to get gas. What I'm saying is I've never spent any time in Chattanooga, but it's a pretty cool little town. It's one of those, uh, oh, hey, this would be an interesting place to live. You know, just big enough, enough stuff going on. Anyway, December 3rd and 4th, Comedy Catch, Chattanooga. All right, let's talk about our brains and money. This is your brain. This is money. This is your brain on money. Any questions? If you're under 40, you probably are wondering what the hell I'm talking about. That is a reference to a commercial from the 80s about drugs. And it was a, this is your brain. And it was an egg. This is drugs. And it was a pan. It was a very hot pan on a stove. And then you go, this is your brain on drugs. And then you would crack an egg and put the egg in the pan and it would sizzle and be like, any questions? Well, I do have some questions about my brain and money because it doesn't seem to be as clear a threat as drugs might be to our cognitive ability. But as I discuss here with Dr. Daniel Crosby, the way our brains have evolved over the last several tens of thousands of years affects the way we approach our money, our investments, our saving, our tendency to spend the way we compare ourselves to other people has to do with tribalism, has to be oriented toward action. And we get deep on this topic in this upcoming conversation. Let me tell you a little bit about Daniel Crosby. He was educated at Brigham Young and Emory Universities, a psychologist and behavioral finance expert. He's also a New York Times bestselling author who's written several books, including The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor, which we discuss at length in this episode. His writing has appeared in the Huffington Post and Risk Management Magazine. And by the way, if you're going to the beach, you got to pick up a copy of Risk Management Magazine to get you through a sunny afternoon with a couple of cold ones. You know what I'm talking about? He also writes a monthly column for wealthmanagement.com and investment news. Daniel was named one of the 12 thinkers to watch by monster.com and a financial blogger you should be reading by AARP. Yes, that's the old people's organization, but I promise you he's young, he is funny, he is thoughtful, and I know you'll like this conversation in which we discuss evolution and how we are the descendants of paranoid, twitchy ancestors, the role of self-esteem in achieving positive financial outcomes, how financial advisors can keep us from our worst instincts, and of course, we talk about gazelles. 
Lots and lot about gazelles. Oh, and Daniel's sneaker fetish. Well, fetish might be a little strong. Let's call it an obsession, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Daniel Crosby. Dr. Daniel Crosby, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. It's great to be here. Daniel, you have a BS and a PhD in psychology. And before you started writing about money, you practiced clinical psychology. Did you just get tired of people whining on your couch? Is that what happened? No, I, well, I mean, yes, kind of. I mean, part of it was getting tired of talking to folks about their breakups. I was working at a college at the time, so there were a lot of breakup problems. But, you know, part of it was just candidly not being able to hack it. It was just an extremely stressful job. I cared a ton for my clients, which is the good news. The bad news is I took it home with me. And, you know, you're you're working with folks who are oftentimes suicidal and you don't know when they leave your office on Friday, if you'll see them on Monday. And it was just emotionally difficult for me uh, in a way that I wasn't prepared for. So it's important work. It's good work. It was not for me. Is writing and teaching about money easier? Less? I mean, it's a pretty big deal, but it's not quite the table stakes of life or death. No, no, it's much easier. And I mean, it's like no one ever died from it, quite literally, right? You have to be on your game And when you're a clinical psychologist, you're literally talking to 40 or 50 people a week who are having the worst week of their life. Nobody's coming to you because they're having a great week. And so it's just, it's heavy. And I believe in therapy. You know, I've been to therapy. I think it does a mountain of good. I was not cut out for the marathon of being a clinical psychologist. Well, let's do a little couch work with me. We'll do me and a couple of scenarios that I've made up. So Dr. Crosby, thank you very much for seeing me on short notice. My wife said I had to come talk to somebody or she was going to kick me out of the house. You see, I've got this pain in my portfolio. I've got more than I've ever dreamed of. And yet my brother-in-law has more money than I do. And it's really driving me crazy. What's going on with me? So this is something that's called mental accounting, right? So we think about money, not in absolute terms, but in relative terms based on how we sort of bucket it. And the way that we account for our money uh, has everything to do with the level of satisfaction we derive from it, how we spend it, save it, invest it. And so how you think about money and the comparisons you choose to make with it are incredibly, incredibly impactful. So what's the old saying about, you know, someone's rich when they have a dollar more than their brother-in-law. It really is true because there's no absolute metric for what is sort of having arrived. So the benchmarks that we choose are enormously impactful on our happiness and even the way we make decisions. But it's not fair because I worked hard in school. I put in the hours every week and all he does is develop real estate. Right. Yes. This is called the just world phenomenon, where we think we think the world should operate by a concrete set of principles and real estate developers make a ton of money, even though they likely shouldn't. But yes, the just world phenomenon is what that is called. But yes, I share your frustration. (laughs) Okay, so I want to balance the playing field with him. And I'm going to do that by making a lot of money in the market. And I just got a hot tip on an angel investment from a really rich buddy of mine. He's going to put his money in. So this is a can't fail thing here. What do you think? Should I do this? So what you're talking about here is something that we actually saw a lot of in the last year and a half with sort of the meme stock investing. A lot of my writing and thinking has been around sort of the evolutionary roots of financial decision-making. And one of the things that we know is that we look at other people to determine the riskiness or non-riskiness of an investment Because we are wired, you know, our brains are wired to operate 150,000, 200,000 years ago, where if you and I are in the savannas of Africa and you eat a berry and two days later you're not dead, I go, okay, well, that berry is good to go then because he ate the berry. Now I can do it. So we've learned to reason and make risk assessments in social terms Uh, But that doesn't always work as well today as it did 150,000 years ago. So we can follow people down a path that may not fit for our risk profile and may not make any sense at all, uh, perhaps because they're doing it at all or because they've had previous success. So that sort of social element to decision making, something to really be aware of. Okay, you fix me and then we're going to get off the couch and I'll just ask you some good questions here. 
<laughs> Let's talk about these brains of ours that we're hauling around in our skulls, because it really seems to be one of the the impediments to success in both investing and sort of feeling good about who we are as human beings. Like in your most recent book, and we'll talk a little bit about a few of your different books and your TED Talks and stuff like that. But in your most recent book, The Behavioral Investor, you talk about the rustling in the grass, right? That if a gazelle functioned like a human, he might hear a rustling in the grass and he or she, I don't want to be sexist around gazelles, you know, when they get upset, they'll cancel you on Twitter. So this gazelle of uh, to-be-determined gender says, I, I don't know what that rustling in the grass is. I mean, I might run away, but I should think about it before I do the pros and cons. And before he has an opportunity to analyze the situation, he's toast, right? Right. So our forebears who survived that situation, who heard the rustling in the grass, interpreted it to be a lion, were the more paranoid ones among the tribe, but they were also the ones whose genes were passed down. How does this manifest in our modern day relationship to money and markets? You said it very well. We didn't always used to be the only humans on the block, right? I mean, there were 11 or 12 other sort of humanoids around and we wiped them all out or outlasted them, depending on who you talk to. Right. So those um, were the, let's, let's talk about who they were. They were the stoner cavemen who played hacky sack all day. And we're like, bro, you don't know what's rustling in the grass. Why you got to be so judgmental? <laughs> right. Where their descendants? They're not, they're yeah. nowhere. We are descended from these sort of twitchy, paranoid, uncool ancestors <laughs> exactly right. who went and hid in the cave. In a very real sense, you and I sit here today because our ancient forebears were risk averse and were, were perhaps even, <laughs> even cowards. And so because they you know, were risk averse, they passed this on to us. And now we have these dramatically what behavioral economists call these asymmetrical risk preferences. So it accounts for happiness, like you said. We are two and a half times as upset about a loss as we are happy about a comparably sized gain. So, you know, making a hundred bucks doesn't really make us all that happy for any amount of time, but losing a hundred bucks makes us two and a half times as upset as making it makes us happy. So it can lead us to be risk averse and loss averse in markets. Uh, it can lead us to sort of a state of perpetual dissatisfaction. It's, it's a tough way to be wired. And yet here we sit. But if you're too risk averse, you'll have all your money in cash for the entirety of your life. And if you're not loss averse enough, you'll go to Vegas and stay at the tables way past time to leave. That's the trick is, is sort of finding the balance. And it also needs to be said that we have multiple simultaneous risk preferences, right? So if you ask an economist, right? So I'll ask you, have you ever gambled? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, said, I have. I have indeed. The gazelles are judging you, by the way. So you've gambled, <laughs> you've gambled before. Of course, Have you yes. ever purchased insurance before? Of course. Right. So economists say that this doesn't exist. Like the person that would both buy a lottery ticket and an insurance policy doesn't exist because those are such different risk profiles. And yet pretty much everyone listening to this podcast has done both things. So we have simultaneous desires to not, you know, eat cat food and also to shoot the lights out and get rich in Vegas. And so which one of those little angels or devils is sort of predominant at any moment has a lot to do with how we end up. But yes, it's all about, like most things with money psychology, it's about sort of finding that middle ground and that, that sweet spot. In your discussion of evolution, you make this very important point that human beings are programmed for action. We want to do things. And that doesn't always work in our benefit when it comes to our money. One of the trickiest things about investing in particular is how 180 the rules of investing are from every other facet of life. You know, in most places in the world, doing more gets you more. Like you read more, you get smarter, you lift more weights, you get stronger, you trade your account more, you get poorer, right? In 19 different countries where it's been studied, we know that there is a, what's called a monotonic relationship. So like a stepwise perfect relationship between how much someone messes with their portfolio and how poorly they do. So the more someone trades, the worse they do. And the people who trade never outperform those who trade by a lot very significantly. I mentioned one of my worst investment decisions earlier. That was a real thing, unfortunately. Lesson learned on that one. But one of my best investment decisions was 
in March of 2020, when the markets just crashed, I don't know, we're down 25 or 30% in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Fortunately, I was out of the country and out of cell zone coverage, so I couldn't call my brokers <laughs> to tell them to do anything, and I did nothing. And yeah. fortunately for me, because I was too lazy to do anything or scared, everything self-corrected. Is doing nothing the key to long-term success? Doing less than you think you should is kind of the way that I put it. Doing nearly nothing. Because, you know, rebalancing is still, uh, rebalancing periodically is still the way to go. But, you know, the average market over the last 35 years, the average intra-year drawdown, so within the space of 12 months, we've had a 14 to 16% correction on average every single year right? Every single year. So if every time you felt like the sky was falling, you got out of your portfolio, you would trade yourself directly into poverty. If you really just sort of reacted to every impulse or every fear, you would do yourself such a massive disservice. So yeah, not quite do nothing, but certainly do much less than you think you should. Have you seen the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall? Yes, it's been forever though. You may recall that he goes to Hawaii, right, to get over this girl, Sarah Marshall. He decides he's going to take surf lessons, and Paul yep. Rudd plays the surf instructor. And his whole thing about surfing is like, you just do nothing. Don't do anything. Jason Segel just lays there, and he goes, oh, you got to do more than that. You got to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's perfect, perfect advice. Not quite nothing, but pretty darn close to nothing. <laughs> So is it just buy index funds, be patient, the end? Is that the name of your next book? I mean, you could do worse. You could write a worse book than buy index funds and do nothing. So the tricky part about this is the same thing that's tricky with weight loss and health and nutrition and a hundred other things. There's this knowing doing gap. If you look at the American populace, about 13% of Americans smoke, but it's like 27% of nurses smoke. And so the people who spend their entire days trying to get people to stop smoking actually smoke at twice the rate of the general population. We see the same thing with financial advisors, right? Financial advisors are able to dramatically assist their clients. People who work with a financial advisor do markedly better than those who do not. Yet when we look at financial advisors' behavior in their own accounts, it's no better than anyone else's. Why is that? What's going on there? Well, it's just we all see ourselves sort of through a glass darkly, right? It's the same reason you can talk to your buddies about their love life with perfect clarity and say, you know, she is or isn't good for you. But then when it comes to your own relationships, everything's emotional, everything's distorted through the lens of your perception. So it's this weird human condition that we're sort of cursed to see other people's plights more clearly than we see our own. And we know these things to do that we just don't do. Speaking of action versus inaction or action versus a more passive approach, it seems that men are more likely to trade more often. Is that because they have a higher degree of self-confidence or they just have a proclivity to action as opposed to patience? So everything, sort of the cop-out answer in psychology is that everything is biopsychosocial, and that is indeed the case with men, right? So if you think about biologically, men have an order of magnitude more testosterone than women, of course. And when we look at in animals and action bias and things in animals, testosterone does predispose you towards sort of greater overconfidence, greater action. And there's been a great book called The Hour Between Dog and Wolf written on testosterone as sort of a marker for trading behavior and how it'll sort of mess you up. So biologically, men are at a disadvantage. Psychologically, yes, men are more overconfident than women, which leads them to overtrade versus women and underperform women in every context, in professional and retail contexts women investors do better than men. And then you think about how men are socialized versus women, right? Women are socialized to be stereotypically speaking, meek and patient and, and humble. And men are socialized, stereotypically speaking, to be grandiose and braggadocious. And so uh, along every facet, men have sort of been trained and, and made to be worse investors than women. And it shows up in the data. But I am a better investor than my wife, just to be clear, because I have a fancy MBA and she doesn't. 
<laughs> well, what's true of groups is not true of anyone in particular. So that may or may not be the case. <laughs> All right. So to what extent are we modern Western human beings just troglodytes with E-Trade accounts? <laughs> to a very large extent. I mean, one of the things that you see and that I've written about is just sort of how poorly situated we are for our modern milieu, right? Like we have more people now dying of excess than dying of want, right? Like there's more people now who die from too many calories than from too few, but we have these brains that are wired for scarcity. And so in a very, very real sense, yes, we are these sort of primitive folks forced into this modern context with bodies and brains and things that aren't really well situated to make us happy or to make us make good decisions with money. Womp womp. <laughs> well, you, you even cite data. You even cite, thanks dude. Really lifting up the podcast people here. The show is just a mirror for our audience to say, Hey, listen, if you're miserable, you're in good company, right? Yeah. You were made that way and there's nothing you can do. About that's it. right. That's right. Wherever we come from, it's not your fault. You even cite data to say that well-being is at an all-time low, or at least at a near-term low. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm about to be 42. So the they started looking about this about the time I was born. And every, <laughs> every year since the, the APA, the American Psychological Association, has looked at this, people are effectively more neurotic and less satisfied than they were the year before. And, you know, over that time, the size of our houses has tripled since World War II. Discretionary income has increased dramatically. Free time has increased dramatically. And so we have more time. Free time has increased. Yes, free time has increased. Oh, yeah. Because we're not getting up at dawn to plow the fields and all that. Right. Right. Everybody likes to think that they are living through the hardest, uh, you know, the hardest time ever. And that may be true psychologically speaking. But yeah, we have more free time definitely than they did 20 or 30 or especially 50 years ago. And we spend it all watching Netflix and griping on our phones. And so, yeah, money, money and happiness are tricky. Yeah, I was complaining to my DoorDash driver the other day about how inconvenient my life is. I'm sure they were very sympathetic to right. that point. Yeah. How does self-esteem interface with my tendency to make good decisions around money? So I'm sort of of this gold star generation where, you know, self-esteem was sort of the, the buzzword and everyone was given a gold star and everyone's a winner with sort of the thought that if we can build up people's self-esteem, then they're going to be better off. So what was done, though, was it it sort of fell out of favor after a meta-analysis was done. So a meta-analysis is sort of a study of all the studies looking at the self-esteem research, and it found a couple of things. It found, first of all, that most of the research was very garbagey and sort of pop psychology. And so most anything that did pass muster, though... Self-esteem wasn't predictive of much, right? Or efforts at boosting self-esteem wasn't predictive of health. It wasn't predictive of wealth. It wasn't predictive of sort of, you know, your likeliness to go to jail or commit crimes. What they found was the only thing that truly builds self-esteem in any meaningful way is taking risks, doing hard things, working hard and accomplishing things, right? Like self-esteem is not built through generic pats on the back and out of boys and out of girls that are disconnected from actual accomplishment. So self-esteem is good. Like self-esteem, we all want that. It helps. But the thing that gets us there is working hard, taking risks and coming out the other side victorious. So there's really no shortcut to it, I guess. I don't want to get super political or anything, but using that as a, let's say that's true. What does that say about current social narratives and social programs that are being used to try to help the disadvantaged? I mean, are we really putting them in an opportunity to earn their own self-esteem? Well, I mean, I think, you know, speaking broadly and again, trying not to get too political, I think any sort of social program or assistance program that is going to have sort of two things, right? First of all, it's going to lift people to a level where they can even think about this. Hopefully, hopefully it does that. Right. You know, poverty is very expensive, both in terms of dollars and cents, but also in terms of mental taxation. 
being poor, you're always thinking about where's your next meal coming from? Where's that roof over your head going to come from? So poverty needs to lift people to a level where they can even sort of let the higher order thinking take over. But yeah, I think any sort of program that's going to have long-term impact will be connected to people's efforts. I'm no expert in these things, but many of the programs that I'm aware of do have sort of an initiative. You have to show that you're applying for jobs. You have to be doing XYZ thing, keeping your nose clean, continue to receive assistance. And so, yeah, I think it's going to have a lifting element to get you to a place where you can even worry about this in the first place. But ultimately, your effort has to begin to augment that as well. While I'm irritating half of my listeners with social commentary, I want to continue that trend and read what I thought was the scariest line in your book. And this is in relation, I believe, to the Sloman and Fernbach conclusions. As a rule, strong feelings about issues do not emerge from deep understanding. The more you learn, and this is another conclusion, the more you learn, the less certain you become. It's kind of scary when you think about who's the most vocal about certain issues in our country right now. Yeah. So there's a couple of great studies on this. There was one where people were asked during one of the wars in the Middle East. I don't remember which one specifically, but they were asked two questions. Basically, they were asked first about their hawkishness, right? Like how pro-war were they? And then second, they were asked to be able to locate Iraq on a map, like a country in the Middle East on a map. right? And they found that the more hawkish people were, the more they wanted to go intervene militarily in the Middle East, the less able they were to locate any country in the Middle East on a map. (laughs) That is so scary. You see this. Just invade any of them. Just invade them all. (laughs) What the hell, man? (laughs) You see this very consistently, though. I mean, I started my PhD when I was 23. When I had gotten my bachelor's degree, I was like, hey, like I basically get humankind now, right? Like I've got <laughs> I've got my bachelor's degree in psychology, so I basically get the human condition. Sure, sure. And you know, I emerge out of a PhD 4 years later completely confused about how people behave. And that's kind of the way it goes, right? I mean, the more you learn about something, the more it takes on shades of gray, it takes on nuance and you become sort of less fervent. You don't pound the table quite as hard. It's a good thing to think about, though, to become an informed consumer of media, right? If you see someone turning red and pounding the table, odds are they don't know much about what they're talking about. You're talking about Jim Cramer here right now, aren't you? Aren't I you? would never, I would <laughs> never name any talking head. And I think it's especially what we've been through the last, you know, 18 months it's really important to be vigilant about the motivations of whoever's opinion you're reading or writing or consuming, including my own, right? I mean, like, we have to be careful about taking what we see as fact because each of those sources has their own motivations, right? And that is to get you to tune back in tomorrow. Yeah, I have a lot to say about this. But, you know, when I was a clinical psychologist, the first thing that drew me to the work was working with people with eating disorders. And so one of the things that we did when someone would come into this inpatient place where I worked, the first thing we would do is we would do media training for them because for the men, they had adopted sort of this Adonis complex, which is referred to colloquially as bigorexia, like trying to get, you know, bigger and stronger and buffer. And then for the women, they had adopted these attitudes that the media portrays about women's sort of unrealistic beauty standards for women And you would educate these folks about how this gets touched up and how they're using this to sell this and how they're trying to make you feel terrible. So you'll buy this purse or this skin cream. And so we need to do that same thing. Like we need to understand how the sausage gets made. Folks on TV are not getting paid when your portfolio goes up. They're getting paid when you freak out and you tune in. That's the incentive and incentives drive behavior. What are the similarities between the work you did with eating disorders and what you see in the financial world? It would be easy to kind of draw parallels that don't exist. I think I think you could try and overextend that metaphor, but I do think there was a real respect in which both folks suffering from eating disorders and people who make bad decisions with their money are less scrutinous of the media than they should be. 
sort of more accepting of these external opinions as being gospel uh, than they maybe ought to be. And I think in both cases, there was an element of control too, right? I think people who exercise a high degree of control over what they put in their bodies have often had, often but not always, had traumatic past events, and they're trying to exercise an element of control. And you also see this element of control in people with respect to their money, right? If especially those who get sort of over-indexed on money and think money does more than it actually does. (laughs) You mean over-indexed sort of as a personal spiritual investment in the redemptive powers of money as opposed to over-indexed in a certain sector of of technology or something? Yes, yes. Index was a poor word choice there. You you said it correctly. Well, I'm rigorous about word choice, (laughs) if nothing else. Gazelles would have it no other way. Thank you. Speaking of control or bad decisions, at one point in one of the books of the TED Talks, you mentioned, you know, one of the things that make people that already have gazillions of dollars make poor decisions. And so this came up on a previous episode number three with Tony Duff for my long-term listeners. But there's a guy named Rajak Gupta, who was a managing director at McKinsey, and he was making like six million bucks a year, had a net worth of a hundred million dollars or something. Oh, he's also on the board of Goldman Sachs, PG, American Airlines, University of Chicago, HBS, all these crazy places. This is a guy like with the greatest reputation and most incredible career. And he got busted for securities fraud when he gave insider information to the guy that ran Galleon Group about Warren Buffett's investment in Goldman Sachs. You remember this story? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Like, what prompts a guy who's got everything to take that existential risk and do something like that that might gain him another whatever, 10 million bucks? Bernie Madoff, people don't understand this, I think. They look at Bernie Madoff and they see this as this sort of cut-and-dried case of greed. What people forget is before Madoff ever started his Ponzi scheme, He was a tens of millionaire before he started defrauding people. He had tens of millions of dollars Mm. and had created and sold the technology that is now NASDAQ. I mean, the guy, the guy was brilliant and the guy was super successful professionally and financially, but he says he never felt accepted into sort of the inner sanctum of Wall Street. He said he always felt like, quote, this sort of awkward Jewish kid from Brooklyn. And so he was always looking for money to do something that it shouldn't do, I think is sort of the common denominator there. Like, right, looking for money to fill a hole or an existential vacuum that it is not set up to fill. All the research on money, it's what psychologists call a hygiene factor, right? So it can keep you from being miserable, but it can't make you happy. Not having money is miserable, right? You're hungry, you're cold, you can't live in a safe place. Like the absence of money can actively make you unhappy, but an excessive amount of money never will fill that hole. So it's a hygiene factor. It can make you not miserable. It can make you like level, but it's never going to move you up Maslow's hierarchy past that first or second rung. And the people who buy into this, they fall into what psychologists call this hedonic treadmill. So if you think about that term, right, this hedonism of, of course, the pursuit of pleasure and the treadmill, it just keeps churning, but never going forward. People tend to live up to what 10 years ago Uh, would have been a splurge for you is now just kind of your everyday. So as you continue to make more and more money, your expectations grow alongside your salary or your income, and you're never quite happy. It never quite feels like enough. And so I think it's essential that people avoid the lifestyle creep that can come alongside success financially. Because when you're young, a Porsche is what it's all about. And 20 years later, you think, I got to have a plane or I'm not going to be on the inside circle. I called my sister when I got my first job out of grad school. And I won't tell you exactly what it made, but I called my sister and I said, hey, I just got my first job. I make X. So basically, like, I'm set for life. (laughs) You know, like, I'm good. 37.5. 37.5. I make 10 times that much now and it doesn't feel any different, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel any different 
because your expectations and your quality of life and everything often tends to rise alongside your salary. So unless you can fill those existential holes in your life some other way, you'll never be happy. It'll never be enough. Does studying these issues of financial wellness help you avoid the pitfalls that our evolved human brains lead us toward? No, not not really. So <laughs> I, <laughs> is that a ringing endorsement? Examples, please. Yeah. Well, I'm a smoking nurse, right? Like I'm the nurse who tells everyone not to smoke all day and then goes and lights up when I leave work. So <laughs> I've written about these things, right? I've written a couple of books about these things. I've studied these things. But at the end of the day, I'm still that same human who makes all the same mistakes as the next person. And in fact, maybe more mistakes than the next person, because my job kind of requires me to stay immersed in the daily ups and downs of markets, right? Like you, when you were out of the country, you didn't make poor choices with your money because you were sort of disconnected from what was going on in in your brokerage account. I can never fully disconnect. So one of the things that I do is I work with a financial advisor. Now, my financial advisor is great. I don't mean to diss him, but like I probably know more about markets than my financial advisor. And yet I pay someone to manage my money because they are a behavioral block between me and a dumb decision, right? That's all they need to do is keep me out of my own way. They're a personal trainer. Everybody knows to eat less and lift more, and yet no one does it. So I'm no better than the next person as a result of having studied this, I'm afraid. Oh, by the way, earlier I called my financial advisor a broker, and that's like calling a flight attendant a stewardess, and I apologize. Yes, that's bad, bad, bad. (laughs) So, So you're paying some fee for objectivity. That's basically what you're getting. Yeah, I'm paying a fee for my worst moments when I call and want to sell everything for them to kind of slap some sense into me. That's exactly right. Now, Daniel, have we thought about this? <laughs> yes. Page 200 of your book says otherwise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what's the worst financial mistake you've made in the last 10 years? <laughs> For a long time, I would have said, and maybe it still is, buying a big house. We both live in the Southeast, right? So you can get a lot of house here yes. that you don't need, perhaps. And so, you know, about five or six years ago, we bought way more house than we needed kind of because you can, but then there's all the attendant things that break and all the things that you have to remodel and and all that. So I won't lie, having a big house during COVID is very nice, but it has been bad. And the worst thing about it, honestly, was that it for a year or two, I was house poor and it kind of impacted in sort of a domino fashion, other parts of my financial plan. I took fewer intelligent risks because I was house poor. I didn't stick to my plan because I was worried about the house. We had two houses for a time because you know the market wasn't what it is today. And so the biggest thing was the way that that purchase kind of got me off track in a meaningful way. What's your biggest indulgence? Baseball cards, guitars, and sneakers. I don't just have one indulgence. Okay, so I see a couple of guitars hanging behind you. How many guitars do you own? I have four guitars, but they're all very nice. And how many pairs of sneakers do you own? Oh, 25. I don't know. Yeah. Do you have a brand that you stick to? Oh, yeah. Jordan 1, 3, and 4, Air Max 1, and Air Max 90. That's uh, just all day, those five. I have a dozen pair of Air Force Ones. Amazing. But you know what? The the way I think about it is this. You know, when I lived in New York and sold advertising, you got to dress nicer when you're in the industry and you live in Manhattan. And I'd buy a pair of Gucci loafers that cost $700, right? Right. That's seven pairs of Air Force Ones. Yeah, well, that's that's mental accounting, my friend. That is mental accounting. <laughs> Have you ever gone a day without a rationalization, to quote the big chill? <laughs> no, I. Uh, for me, it's, as you may have picked up, you know, your listeners are like, is this guy 10 years old? Like, for me, it's... <laughs> sneakers and baseball cards, mister. You know, and for, <laughs> For me, and at least I'm self-aware about it, it doesn't make it any different, but it's it's buying all the stuff I couldn't buy as a poor kid in mm. Alabama, right? It's yeah. all the stuff I wanted when I was 10 or 12 that I couldn't buy and I wanted, and now I can, so I do. 
Yeah, that's why I have an Atari 2600 HBO and Ralph Lauren sheets. I've arrived, you know? Uh, I feel like a whole, a fulfilled human being now that I have all that uh, stuff. We're both very broken. (laughs) Well, we're all broken, right? I mean, that's the thing. And that's why this podcast exists is because, you know, for a long time, I put a lot of faith in money and I was like, someday I'll make money and I'll feel complete. And then you make money and you're like, why don't I feel any different? Why do I feel like the same schmuck I felt like? when I was broke. Now I do feel better than when I was broke. Right. But I don't feel better than I did once I had a little bit of change in my pocket. Correct. Yep. All right. We talked about this before you are Mormon. How does your faith inform your relationship to money? So I'll speak to my faith. I think there will be some similarities and some divergences for other people of faith. For me, it's really three ways, right? The first sort of most obvious way is it makes me generous. When you look at the ways in which money can buy happiness, there's only a couple. One is getting out of things you hate, you know, like mowing the yard or cleaning the house. Money buys happiness there very consistently. The other uh, way is spending time with people you love, making memories on a vacation or something. And then the third one is giving it away. And so, I mean, I grew up with a very deeply entrenched expectation. You're going to give 10% plus of your income away (laughs) pre-tax. You know, you're going to give 10% of your money away and you're going to, you're going to love it. And it's really, (laughs) it's really, I drank the Kool-Aid. It's really stuck and it does make me happy. The second way is Mormons in particular. And I think perhaps especially Mormons who grew up in Alabama, have sort of a siege mentality, like have sort of a sense of being other or sense of being picked on. And so money is sort of the fast path to respectability, right? You know, you think about the Bernie Madoff thing I talked about, you know, he was trying to buy respectability. He was trying to buy acceptance into this in-group by having enough money. So I think growing up in a sort of a minority religious community has made me strive for money in a way uh, that I might not have otherwise out of sort of a, an ill-gotten attempt at respectability. And then I think the third way has been trying to figure out and working to this day to try and figure out the difference between sort of like doctrinal or scriptural ideas about money, which are spoiler alert for all the Christians. The Bible doesn't have much good to say about having lots of money versus the way that money is sort of culturally moves within institutional religions. So I had a friend who did a dissertation on uh, money attitudes among Mormons and, and found very consistent with my experience that Mormons who have a lot of money are seen as more orthodox, more righteous, more good, more moral than those who didn't. And it's this sort of prosperity theology idea that like God blessed me with this. So trying to like tease out what does my religion actually believe about money, which is that, you know, too much can corrupt very fast and that you should mostly give it away uh, versus what sort of culturally does my religion have to say about it? You know, one of the things I learned when I started making a little money, had some to spare and give away, was that not all donations deliver the same kind of feeling like, well, that was worth it, right? I mean, you could call it a mental return on investment. How do you measure your philanthropic donations in terms of like what really was worth it and what you're going to do more of in the future? Well, so we try and diversify the same way that we do with our asset allocation, right? So if you read sort of the data on philanthropy, it would tell you in sort of the most rational objective sense that you should effectively buy vaccines and mosquito nets, like buy mosquito nets because for a couple of bucks, you can save a life. And so I think there's something to be said for saving lives with a relatively small donation. So a portion of our money goes to that sort of thing, low dollar, high impact stuff that's going to just physically keep people alive But then I'm a musician. My wife is an artist. We believe that there's things in the world that make life worth living and that music and art are are some of those things. And so a portion of our money goes to things like arts charities, which are not saving lives in a practical sense, but they are elevating lives, which I think is also important. And we always make sure that the biggest portion of our money goes somewhere where we can be personally involved. And we have young children 
And we want to get them in there, getting their hands dirty, working with people they can see and see how that money is moving and not just sort of writing a check. So I like to diversify, but the biggest cut always goes to somewhere where we can have sort of a boots on the ground impact in addition to writing a check. I like the idea of elevating lives because sometimes I get lost on the rabbit hole of effective altruism. And it's like, if it's not like a 10 X return, then we're wasting our money. But I think that's a limited way to think about it. I agree. I think we need both parts. Besides your family and your faith, what are you most proud of? Oh my goodness. Um, My writing, I think. I have a real sense that very little in the world of business endures. (laughs) You know, if you look at the most successful companies, you know, the most successful companies in the S&P 500, say, so giant mega corporations, they last about 35 years on average. So, I mean, it's not even half a lifetime anymore. So, even if you build a business, grow a business, sell a business, become extravagantly rich in the process Uh, there's really not much to show for it besides the money, of course. At the end of that, uh, to me, ideas endure, writing endures, music endures, art endures. And so I want to spend more time on my creative efforts because I think that is sort of the most enduring thing we can do as a human family. What makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful? You're asking me this in 2021. What makes me hopeful? What better time could there be? So little, so little. No, what makes me hopeful is that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice and that my kids are more egalitarian, more empathic, kinder, less judgmental than I am. And I think that with every subsequent generation, we're going to become bigger hearted and better. That makes me hopeful. Why do you think that is besides just the fact that we've let go of certain prejudices, you know, from generation to generation, why are subsequent generations more empathic? Well, I think some of it is just increased. I agree with you, by the way, I look at my kids and go, God, they're better people than I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think part of it is a deepened understanding, right? I think as science and literature and art and things enrich and enlighten our understanding and we have a better grasp on what is and what isn't, I think we begin to treat each other better. We become kinder and better to each other. So I think that's a trend that's going to continue. And it's easy again to kind of think that everything's getting worse. And indeed, I fell into that trap like 90 seconds ago. But you know, when you when you really look at the data, we're becoming kinder, we're becoming less violent, we're becoming more egalitarian. Things were rough a couple hundred years ago, and we're getting better. And that gives me a lot of hope. Last question. Do you feel rich? I do. I do feel rich. I feel rich because I get to do work that I enjoy every day. I feel rich because I'm surrounded with people uh, that I care about. And I feel rich because I live in a country where I get to, you know, pursue my interests and my dreams and get to construct a future. Rollo May says that depression is the inability to construct a future. And so anytime we're striving, we're pushing forward, we're trying to do big things, uh, we're rich. And that's something I'm always trying to do. Dr. Daniel Crosby's most recent book is called The Behavioral Investor. It's available wherever you get books and audiobooks. Daniel, where else can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, you can come yell at me on Twitter at Daniel Crosby. And I'm also on LinkedIn, Daniel Crosby, PhD. We'll put links to those in the show notes. And Daniel, it was great to talk to you. Thanks for your time. You too. Thanks. Right on. Really enjoyed that conversation with Daniel Crosby. What a smart dude. And what a nice kind of fun, easy person to talk to. Thank you, Daniel. All right, let's get to takeaways. Number one, it's not you, it's your brain. Money plays tricks on our brains. Our brains are software that hasn't been updated in hundreds of thousands of years or 150,000 years, whatever. And yet we live in a world that has changed radically, not just in the past thousand years, but in the past 200 years. Hell, think of how different our world is just since the iPhone was invented, like in 2006, 15 years. What percentage is that? 15 over 150,000? I should know, but it's small. And so... You know, if you're making mistakes with your money, if you don't have a healthy relationship, it's not an excuse necessarily, but it's certainly an explanation. And I strongly encourage you to pick up some of Daniel's writing, maybe watch his TED Talks. They're short, they're fun, and they're worth your time just to help get your brain right when it comes to money. 
Number two, I love this concept of elevating lives when it comes to philanthropy. I do believe that we all have a duty to give back to those who are the least fortunate among us. What is change to us or what is just a little bit of money can really change somebody's lives. But I also like this concept of elevating lives, that it shouldn't just be that rigorous return on investment examination that we do in effective altruism, but that there's a lot of beauty in life that can be nurtured through philanthropic endeavors as well. So kudos to him for for thinking about that part of philanthropy as well. Lastly, the hedonic treadmill just keeps coming up. We're going to talk about it again in the future, I feel sure. Two or three concepts that I didn't know about that I wish I had known about before I became financially successful they would be the hedonic treadmill and the human tendency for comparison that we talked about earlier today. That these are two of the most powerful things, the two most important reasons why most of us will never feel rich, why 90% of the population in the United States describes themselves as middle class. Comparison, our inability to see our resources relative to those with less and only against those with more, and the hedonic treadmill. These two are very much related. The hedonic treadmill meaning our tendency to adapt, to habituate to new levels of prosperity so that it just feels normal. And so that you could be objectively an incredibly successful affluent person, but by comparison or by conditioning, you just are like, oh, this is normal. This is what we always do. We always eat at a five-star restaurant and order a $200 bottle of wine. That's just normal. That's what we do. Well, it's not normal, really. It's an incredible luxury. And I think we can all do ourselves a hell of a lot of good by just trying to be aware in the moment and remind yourself like, we got it pretty damn good here, folks. Let's at least enjoy it and give back a good bit to others. Next week, I'm going to have a show about the very wealthiest neighborhood in Atlanta trying to secede from the city of Atlanta and what the ethical, moral, and practical implications of rich areas of towns trying to cordon themselves off might be for the rest of society. It's an interesting conversation. A lot of strong arguments on both sides of the table. So it's not just a moral condemnation of the idea because there's a lot of issues the city of Atlanta is not solving for these people in Buckhead, but it is also highly complex. Anyway, that's it. I'm going to stop talking. In the meantime, Mike Carano, do your thing.